Good morning and Happy New Year. It's a pleasure to see so many faces this morning. I wasn't, uh, didn't know what to expect on a New Year's morning. As you know, um, we are a church that really values expository preaching. And we want to make sure that the word is central. Uh, with that said, this is somewhat of a topical sermon. Uh, in your bulletins, it says we're going to be covering Colossians 2, 1 through 15. We are going to be anchoring ourselves in Colossians this morning. And the message of change that we've already been getting a hint at this morning is really coming from the text of Colossians. I'm going to actually read, though, from starting verse uh, 28 of chapter 1, so just two, two extra verses from what's in our bulletin this morning. If you would please stand with me again for the reading of God's word. Starting in Colossians 1, 28. Him, Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him all the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of death, or body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So as Paul mentioned during our confession time, one thing that people often like to do for New Year's is to make resolutions. Well, why is that? As you know, people long for change. Everyone wants their life to be better. Everyone wants to do their part to be a better uh, member of society, to make the world a better place. 
And many people get as far as realizing that we actually need to change. But the desire for change and seeing it happen are not the same thing. The problem, of course, is that we often look for and pursue change and growth in a world that is in in continual disorder. It's continually decaying. And in the search for change, we often see in our own desire for personal change that we're swimming against the tide because this world is moving more and more towards chaos and we want to move towards maturity. Well, the truth of the matter is that we all desire to change in some way because we know that we should. We know that we need it. We are all in need of change because we all have sin in our hearts. And unfortunately, we are all led away to seek change in worldly ways because they're right there in front of us. They're presented to us every day. If you need a statistic, I'll make one up. 90% of statisticians, however you pronounce that, believe we fail to change in a substantial way. Maybe I need to resolve to get more reliable statistics. The truth, though, is that what we often see is that people fail to make the changes they set out on. The real change that we really need comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ because he has made us new and he has filled us with himself. And Paul's letter to the Colossians instructs us about this reality for the Christian. And the reality that we are going to embrace this morning, the one that we're going to really dig into, is that Christ has changed you so that you can pursue Christ-like change. Again, Christ has changed you so that you can produce and pursue Christ-like change. There's three realities underneath this that we need to look at, that we need to understand. One is our sinful nature requires us to change, and it keeps us from changing ourselves. Two, you can pursue Christ-like change because Jesus has given you a new heart through faith. And three, your full and final change is coming so that you can persevere. So one, your sinful nature requires you to change. You need change because of your sinful nature. This morning I began the reading in Colossians 1.28. Him we proclaim, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul's desire for people of the church to be mature exposes the reality of remaining sin, the, the need for change. It is sin which ruins us. It's sin which separates us from God. It's sin that leads to corruption and death. And whether everyone in the world calls it sin or recognizes it as sin or not, everybody knows that we need this kind of change. Everyone knows that there's something wrong. Everyone knows that we have room for improvement. And as Christians, and as we've heard already multiple times this morning, we know that what needs to happen is that we need to turn from sin and self to God. We need to turn in repentance from sin to God himself. In the beginning of this letter, Paul thanked, the, thanked God because of the Colossians' faith, which resulted from their hearing and understanding the grace of God and truth. And this is the response of one who recognizes their sin, who recognizes their need for reconciliation. And later in the letter, Paul warns the people about a worldly philosophy 
or what he calls the elemental spirits, in which, which are tied to regulations of the body. Those who brought these philosophies, the world that brings these regulations and traditions, they're seeking to instill some kind of religious restrictions that were meant to shape the lives of the believers. In other words, they promised them change through habits and traditions and disciplines. There's also instruction about participating positively in religious festivals or other activities. But Paul says that these are a shadow What he means by this is that they have no real benefit. And the reason that they don't have any real benefit is because those who bring them and what's underneath them are not grounded in Christ himself. Now, while it's not explicit in this passage is what they all teach, whether it is instruction that comes from Paul or the rest of the scriptures, or whether they're from the philosophies of the world, is that there is a need for change. And as I mentioned, all of this need for change is due to our own sin. And what we're not told in this passage, or any other passage on the contrary, is that we need to work harder in ourselves to bring about the change. The Bible tells us very clearly that we are not capable of change because of our sinful nature. As Paul puts it in Romans, our flesh is not able to please God. In our flesh, we're not able to obey God. This is why Paul's commands in Colossians 3 are directed at those who are raised with Christ. When he says in the rest of the letter about our behavior, what to put on and put off, it's conditioned on this one thing. If then you have been raised with Christ, your union with Christ is necessary. Our sinful nature requires that we change, but we can't do it in ourselves. We need help from God. And our inability to change is, in, is tied to our inability to save ourselves. And this truth stretches across the whole Bible. Moses told the Israelites plainly that they were told that, that they can't obey God. Why does he say that? Why does he give them all of these commands and says, well, you can't do this? He says in Deuteronomy 2, 29, 4, he says, to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. In our confession this morning, that Paul read, Jeremiah thirteen twenty three. can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. Jeremiah t- is telling Israel that they are going to exile because they can't stop sinning. They can't stop rebelling against God. Jesus makes it clear in John eight thirty four by saying, Jesus answered the rulers, the Jewish people, truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who practices a sin is a slave to sin, that we're trapped, we're stuck in our sin. We are depraved in our hearts, unable to truly change because we have become enslaved to sin. Now, those of us who have made New Year's resolutions in the past, any, any kind of resolution to change our sinful behaviors, all of us have experienced failure. I even went to the point of saying, okay, the only resolution I'm going to make is I'm not going to write last year's date whenever I fill out paperwork. I, day one, I failed, right? Because we've ingrained ourselves in these things. We're slaves to it. The biggest issue I want to point to us was to today is, is not whether we're successful in eating better, watching less TV or YouTube, or exercising more, or being wiser with the money, or even changing habits that are sinful. 
The bigger issue we need to face is that we have all failed to overcome sin in ourselves. We've failed to overcome anger. We still find ourselves losing our temper. We fail to overcome impatience by just delaying our response to what makes us impatient. We've failed to uh, move away from deception by exaggerating or elaborating stories to make people think we're better than we are. In some cases, we've merely swapped one sin for another because what we sought was not change in Christ himself. It's important to face this reality because we will never find victory ever. Hear this. You will never find victory over your sin when you're just trying to do better. So what are the implications of this? One, Paul instructed the Colossians to not follow the worldly philosophy of self-denial. In Colossians 2, verses 20 to 23, he writes, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. Here's the key. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom. It looks like a good idea in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You need to hear that. All of our practices in and of themselves have no power to stop the indulgence of the flesh, to, to, to stop the hunger of sin. What this means is that depriving yourself of sin, of what you're tempted of, is not an end in itself. Our sin is not put to death just by avoiding it. And this is because, and we must not ever forget to remember this, is that God himself is the agent of change. There's countless books out there, countless therapies, countless self-helps that may possibly help you change some habits, but they will not change who you are. You may learn some self-control tips. You may learn to stop blaming yourself. You may learn to let go of things that are outside of your control. And while these may bring some positive changes to your life, they're only deceiving us into thinking that we're better than we actually are. So the truth remains, we are sinners who need to change. Paul writes in Colossians 1, verses 9 through 10, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. How we live matters. How you live matters. Our lives can be pleasing to God. And even though we don't have the power in ourselves to do it, we do have hope. And that hope is found in Jesus Christ himself and our union with him. This brings us to our second main point. You can pursue Christ-like change because Jesus has given you a new heart. He has changed you from the inside. You can pursue Christ-like change because he has given you a new heart. Simply put, all you need to experience change that, that God requires of you is yours through Christ and your reconciliation with him. To show you how Paul argues this, I'm going to cover a lot of 
uh, portions of, of Colossians, and then we'll come back in and, and hone in on some of the key things that we need to anchor on so that we can pursue real change. Paul's major argument about change or maturity or completion in Christ is rooted first in who Christ is. Now, Paul begins to speak of what God has done in Christ and who he is in Colossians 1.12. All of verses 9 through 14 are the content of what Paul is praying for the Colossian church, but starting in verse 12, he says how we are to walk worthy. Listen to this. We walk worthy by giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. How has he qualified us? He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and he has transferred us from the, from the, uh, to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's the work that God has done. Now in verse 15, he begins to speak of Christ himself. Who is this Christ that has redeemed us? Well, he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He goes on to say that in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, through Christ, to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven. In summary, we see that God has qualified us. God has qualified us for the inheritance in Christ and delivers us through the Son. He has changed our citizenship, and he's changed our relationship. As the second person of the Trinity, he's the creator of the universe. Everything that is in the world is his, including us. His role as head of the church and firstborn from the dead stand behind Paul's statement that Christ is preeminent because, as the head, all the parts of the body get their life from him. He is preeminent because the fullness of deity dwells in Christ. He is fully God. And because God dwells in him, he is able to reconcile all of our sins upon himself. Paul continues in verse 21 saying that everyone who believes is reconciled in him. Look at it. Colossians 1:21. And you who were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This is the work of Christ in you. He has turned you from hostile to holy. This is God's plan for you. This is the goal of Paul's ministry. So again, we need to look at that goal in in 128. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that he may present everyone mature in Christ. We are going somewhere because of uh, who Christ is and what he has done. Presenting everyone mature in Christ is what we're going for, what we're talking about with change, growing in Christ's likeness or simply to change as we should. Paul continues to speak of his desires for the church in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. He says, he, gives, he instructs these things so that they would reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He wants them to grow in knowing Christ. That is his number one priority. And this is undergirding the whole point for us this morning. 
All assurance for hope. All our understanding for change is in Christ. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, a wisdom and knowledge that overcomes sin because we see the beauty of who God is. Paul writes the reason he says these things in verse 4, which is because the plausible arguments that are coming in that try to delude the people. And then we come to chapter 2, verse 6. This is, in my opinion, the hinge verse for this letter. Look at it. Colossians 2, 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, as, in other words, in the same way that you have received Christ, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. The worldly philosophies... Everything out there in the world that tells us how to change is useless and falls short because they don't have what it takes to change. They don't have Christ. Verse 9, in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Christ is the standard because he is the image of God. The fullness of God dwells in him. We were made in the image of God, so we need to look to him who is the image of God. But there is more, and this is mind-blowing when you think about it. Verse 10, and you, you have been filled in him. See the connection. The fullness of God dwells in Christ, and you have been filled in him. Your fullness is in God himself, who is the head of all rule and authority. Now what Paul is writing for, what he's praying for is not some pie-in-the-sky ideal. It is a living reality. It is because of who Christ is and because of who we are in him that we can change. Well, how is this possible? How are we filled in him? He continues in verse 11, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Let's stop and talk about this for just a second. This is weird language, right? What is the circumcision that Paul is talking about? Doesn't he say in Galatians that circumcision means nothing? What is the circumcision of Christ? Well, this is one way of talking about the new birth. A new, this is new birth language from the Old Testament. Circumcision, as you know, is the cutting off of, of the foreskin, which is a visible and permanent marker uh, for being in the community of Israel. So how is it related to the new birth? Well, let, let me tell you. In Deuteronomy 10, Moses tells the people to love the Lord. This is what their purpose is, to walk in his ways, to serve him with all the heart and all the soul by keeping his commandments. But he also knows that they're not able to do this. He warns them many times that they are going to turn away and judgment will come. So he says in Deuteronomy 10, 16, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. There's the flesh that's in the way of their love for God. To circumcise the heart is to remove that which hinders our love for the Lord. And since he knows that they can't do this themselves, Moses promises in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, that you may live. He's going to do that work. He does that work. 
Jeremiah and Ezekiel describe this as the new covenant when God gives his people a new heart that loves him and loves to keep his ways. So when Paul mentions the circumcision of Christ in Colossians 2, he's referring to the new birth that we have. It's the new birth that brings real change from the inside. We are changed so we can love the Lord and walk in his ways. Now, Paul ties this new birth to baptism. We're going to see a a picture of that today. He says, we were buried with him in baptism and raised with him through faith. Faith in what? In the powerful working of God, who raised him through faith, who raised him from the dead. Our union with Christ, which is symbolized in baptism, which we receive by faith, is the engine that drives the change that we need. It's the engine for change to maturity. It is what is the root of our maturity into Christ-likeness. So just in case you're getting lost, I've been surveying the work that Christ has done that enables you to change so that all we can do is look to him. All that Paul wants the Colossians to do is look to Christ with adoring faith. We start by faith and we progress by faith to grow in godliness, in sanctification, in Christ-likeness. So this is how we receive Christ Jesus the Lord. We are told that God delivered us from the domain of darkness through Jesus. We were told that through Christ we are reconciled. We are told that he is the hope of glory, a glory that we have all fallen short of. And when we heard these things, by God's grace, we believed God opened our hearts to believe, to trust, and to throw ourselves at his mercy and wrap ourselves in his steadfast love. This is how we received Christ Jesus the Lord, by faith. Have you received Christ Jesus the Lord? Have you turned to be reconciled with him? Jesus has done all that is necessary for our reconciliation, and all he calls you to do is repent and believe. It is by this faith, the same faith that saves, that we are to walk in him. And this is the key. This is why I believe that Colossians 2, 6-7 is the hinge for this letter. This is why Paul warns about being taken captive by empty philosophies. These philosophies deny the power that Christ brings for change. And we all get sucked into it. But we don't have to. We have everything we need through faith in Christ to battle sin head-on, and to persevere in the faith. Now, what does this look like? The use of the word power and the way he relates it to the way we live is helpful. What other power can you think of that determines so much of what we do and maybe even take for granted? Well, how about gravity? Do you set your keys on the counter, expecting them to sit right there because gravity is holding them to the counter? not to mention kids that might grab them and take them away. Or Do you turn on the faucet and just hope that the water drains down and not gets all over the kitchen or the bathroom or wherever it's at? We've become so accustomed to gravity that we don't even think about it. We know what's going to happen. It's as good as done when we think about it. We place a stack of sturdy, or place a heavy stack of plates on a sturdy shelf, knowing that that weight needs to be supported by something strong. We also don't walk into a room 
with a glass of water and just let go, thinking that it's going to stay where we left it. We do these things for granted. We've become accustomed to it. Now, we may have become accustomed to gravity, but we not necessarily have become accustomed to live by faith because of our sin. So we need to learn. We need to be growing in this. We need to, to live by faith in God's power. We need to continue to tr- train ourselves to trust in God's saving power, which is Christ himself. Because we were born in sin, because we've lived in sin, we've actively worked against him, uh, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, we need this training. And God has given us two primary means to train ourselves to trust him. And they all have to do with communication. The first one, obviously, is God's word. The key to growth, the key to change, is in the scriptures, which point to Christ. When we are exposed to the scriptures, the Holy Spirit, if we're in Christ, works in us to light the way of the gospel of grace. It reveals to us the power of God in salvation and the beauty of Christ. For the power of God's word to work, we must be exposing ourselves to the word. It needs to be personal time, but also corporate time. Above all, we need to understand the character of the God that stands behind that word. He's revealed himself as a God who saves his people. And he has shown his steadfast love overcomes the power of sin, which he, he did himself at the cross. And secondly, we must be a praying people. We can't expect any kind of change if we're not praying. There's two kinds of prayer I want to focus on. The first is a prayer for enlightenment. Paul, Paul prayed this this morning. We must be asking God to give us eyes to see the glories of Christ. We must be saying with the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 18, he says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. We also must be praying that we would see the beauty of God in Christ that Paul proclaimed in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We need God to open our eyes because we have darkened our eyes. We need God to open them up so that we would see that beauty, the beauty that's in Christ himself. The other kind of praying is a prayer of confession and protection from sin. After extolling God's glory in creation and the wonders of his word, David prays in Psalm 19, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Hear hear the dependence of David in that. Declare me innocent. Keep me back. This is like the cry of the Lord's Prayer, Lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. There's also the prayer of confession in Psalm 51. I don't know if you've read this psalm very often, but what you'll not see here is a resolve against sin. It's a prayer of dependence for cleansing. It's a prayer that looks to God, looks to, to looking to the God of steadfast love. Listen just to a couple of these verses. Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. 
Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. We must be a people who pray in complete dependence on this God who promises to wash and cleanse us. Because we know that God is a God who does this work. We need to look to his promises. We need to seek his cleansing so that our hearts will learn to love him more and more, which is what brings us to the change we need. It is by these two means, the word and prayer, that we get in step with the Spirit. It is only then, only then, in the word in the pr- and in prayer, that we can begin to truly follow the commands that are in Colossians 3 or any other part of Scripture that tells us what we ought to do. The virtues that we are to put on to make us like Christ. Our sinful nature requires that we change. And because of the work of Christ, we know that we can, because he is the one who changes us. And lastly, we know that one day we will be completely changed, which helps us persevere. So point three, your full and final change is coming. It's, it's certain. Your full and final change is coming so that you can persevere. We're given that information so that we can persevere. Now, there's two wrong ideas about Christian maturity Sometimes we expect too little, thinking that I can't overcome anything. And sometimes we expect too much, thinking I'm going to have some kind of perfection. We know that neither of those are true, but we are called to change. We know we're not going to have full change, but we do know that we can have victory. But that full and final victory is not going to happen until Christ returns. Paul told the Colossians that Christ is proclaimed with the attended result that they may present everyone mature in Christ. After explaining how they have new life in Christ and how not to pursue change, he moves them to tell how to persevere. And I'll be brief here. Look at Colossians 3. Colossians 3.1 If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You see that? When Christ returns, we will appear with him in glory. We will be changed. This is how he fronts the commands of obedience. This is how he fronts the call to perseverance, by telling them the end of the story. He gives that until when statement right at the beginning. We're going to do these things until Christ returns, and then we will appear with him in glory. He gives the end result to give them the motivation that they need. And he's giving away the end of the story now so that you can face the challenges that you have now looking ahead, knowing who is going to bring you the final change. The Apostle John, the beloved disciple, tells us the same things. In 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3, he writes, Beloved, we are God's children now. We have had that change. We have a new relationship. 
And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. The vision of Christ is what brings us the change. And what is the result after that? Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. John speaks of our new status as children. He says that one day we'll be like our Savior. Verse 3, that gives the natural consequence, the natural course of life for this hope. A purification that's based on the pure character of Christ. Have you ever tried to put a Lego set together or maybe a puzzle and you don't have either the instructions or the box that gives you the picture? It is a useless task. Let me tell you, we're going to go nowhere. But when we have the picture of what Christ is giving us, we know where we're going. And that gives us the fuel to change, to the fuel to look to Christ who's going to bring us all of this glory. So how do we change? Do we hunker down, buckle up, tighten our bootstraps, clench our fists, grit our teeth, and just obey better? Let me borrow a question from the Apostle Paul. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? See the contrast. Do we try to just work harder after we've been saved to grow into what he's called us to? No. He says in Romans, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. By the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body. Paul explains after this last verse in Romans that that the spirit we have received is the spirit of adoption. It's a spirit that's brought us into God's family. It's a spirit that's given us a new citizenship, and it's a spirit that's given us a new heart. This is how we change. We look to God in Christ by the spirit. We put sin to death, not by trying any harder, but by looking to Christ We do put sin to death, but we do it through the Spirit, by looking to Christ. We grow in our love for one another, not by getting over ourselves, but by looking to Christ. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. We are all in need of change. And the change we need is to be conformed to the image of Christ. We need this change because we're sinners. We started out dead in our sin, Christ makes us alive in our sin. And we can be changed because of that, because he has given us a new heart. And we can persevere in that change because we have a sure hope. We have a sure hope that we will share with Christ in his glory when he returns. Let's pray. Father, we give you nothing but praise because you are the God who saves and you are the God who sanctifies. You have called us to be perfect as you are perfect. And we have that perfection in Christ. Help us to live by that faith that we would see the wonders of your word, the beauty of Christ, and that that vision of Christ would so eclipse our desires for sin that they would make sin's appeal turn disgusting and revolting because we have become enthralled 
and in love with your beauty. We ask now that you would continue to sanctify us through your word, because your word is the truth, and your truth sets us free from sin. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.